Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, by which you not only remind us of grace, but you give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to think your thoughts after you this morning, to embrace, to love, and to live the truth. Help us to see our continuing need for Christ and how he continues to supply that grace that we do need. Restore your image in us this morning by renewing our minds as well as our hearts. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the perfect image of the eternal God. Amen. There's sort of an adage, you may have heard something along these lines, that as leadership goes, so an organization goes. If you have bad leadership, what tends to happen is you have a bad organization. It kind of flows down. And uh, things get corrupted. I was reading this week about a, a training squadron that flew out of Florida in 1945. Okay, now we have to remember, this is 1945. There's no GPS system in uh, little airplanes. Okay? So they took this, ba- this training mission and they had, all of them were training, uh, I can't remember if it was Air Force or Navy, but there was one lieutenant commander who was an experienced pilot And all of the rest were inexperienced pilots. And at some point during their mission south, uh, he thought they were over the Florida Keys and his compass had stopped working properly. So he was a little discombobulated as to where he was. He thought he was over the Keys. And so he thought all he had to do was fly north and he'll hit Florida and he'll be able to see some landmarks and be able to land. Unknown to him, he was actually over the Bahamas. So when he flew north, he never found land. And because the radios were not as strong, they weren't able to keep in, in, in constant contact with them and had trouble. But they do remember some, hearing some of the other pilots saying, if we just fly west, we will hit Florida. And he refused to listen to these men. And so as a result, the last recorded message, they, they tracked it, they triangulated it somehow and realized that he was off the coast of New Smyrna Beach which is uh, just north of Orlando, and they couldn't find them ever again. This training group perished because the leader was not wise. Yes, he had faulty equipment, but no, he did not trust those who were around him, and he led his people into destruction. So, we don't want that. So let's, let's listen to what God says about these things. The big idea this morning is that God governs his people through guys who are growing in grace. Sorry for the alliteration, but guys who are growing in grace. That is how God governs. 
Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor of a church that Paul had planted in Ephesus. It is a troubled church. Since Paul has left, all kinds of problems have broken out in this congregation. And so Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, to instruct him. And he uses this series of faithful sayings to kind of uh, shape his fatherly advice to his son in the faith, Timothy. The first of which was, here is a trustworthy saying, Christ has come to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And so we're not looking at that one today. (laughs) Uh, Some of you have heard that when I preached that at Rincon Mountain. So I've said, let's go to the next one which is the one that we find beginning chapter 3. So let's look at this first in terms of God's people need willing men to oversee them. Now, Paul's reliable word, his trustworthy word that must be, that should be embraced by us, really flies in the face of sort of conventional wisdom in a couple of different ways. First off, it flies in the face of conventional wisdom in the sense that ministry is inconvenient and difficult. Why would anyone want it? Why would anyone want to do it? It is inconvenient in numerous ways. I know my wife will have a different opinion on this. But it seems that every time the Celtics or the Red Sox are on national TV, I've got some ministry commitment. Okay? You have to give up stuff. And the elders give up a lot. There are evenings, at least two Tuesday nights a week usually, that we are out together, either at session meetings or we're doing visitation. There are other meetings that we attend to. Huh? Sorry, twice a month. Yeah. Whew. I didn't want to scare you guys away. <laughs> You'd never be elders or deacons. Twice a month. Thank you for correcting that mistake of mine. God's word is infallible. I am not. Okay. All right. Twice a month, at least, they are out doing the work of the church. Okay. Not only that... Uh, But it's difficult, because as we see even in this letter, uh, there are problems that Timothy experienced that still happen today. There are still problems of false doctrine that erupt within a body uh, of believers. There's still controversy that erupts that must be dealt with. There is still sinful living that must be addressed in the lives of people. Let's listen to a couple of these passages in this letter itself. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any any longer. Timothy's there to put down false teaching, to stop it in its tracks. Continues in verse 4, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And so we had these people kind of move in uh, after Paul and... Paul talks about this as well in his address to the Ephesian elders uh, in Acts, I think it's 18 or 19. And it says that wolves will come in among them and try to devour the flock. There were problems in this church, and someone needed to deal with them. And Timothy was not intended to deal with them alone. Okay, He was left there to, to choose elders and deacons to work beside him. In chapter 4, we see that the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. 
They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He's talking about false teaching that will be in the church, not outside of the church. And Paul needs to get it outside of the church. He needs to show the, the, the faulty logic of the legalism in some ways that would come into the church in Ephesus. And so it is difficult work that is involved here. So that's the first reason why it sort of flies against the face of conventional wisdom. The second is that we tend to suspect people who aspire to leadership, don't we? How many of you have an HOA? I did in Florida. I have one now. I don't know who's on the board. But I was always suspect of the people who wanted to be on the board of the HOA. <laughs> okay? You know they've got an agenda, and you know they're going to try and force their agenda on other people, and it may not be a pretty thing. I still have the shakes from one, one meeting we had of our HOA. It was not a pleasant experience. And so we tend to be a little suspicious of those who want power. But, but that is from a worldly perspective when it comes to the church, or at least it should be. Paul here is talking about overseers. That's another word for elders. Okay, this is the episkopos, if you want to look at the Greek. And that is a person who inspects. That is someone who looks over, someone who directs others. And so this is the one who oversees, who inspects, who looks over and directs the church. Similar to my brother-in-law, Rob. Rob owns his own business. And so there are a lot of things that Rob doesn't like about this business. He, he just basically wants to build stuff. He's a contractor in upstate New York. He wants to build stuff, but sometimes he's got to put on the, I have to go find a job for my men to do hat. And so he has to go out and do this. That's not all he does. He also has to spend time overseeing the work of his men so that the work that is done is keeping with the quality that he wants his, to be associated with his name with the, comp- the name of his company. And so he must continue to watch over, inspect, and take care of those. And sometimes that's difficult because, well, we all know how sinful people are, right? They don't want to put in a full eight hours day, or they, they're, they're, they want to take a shortcut and get something done quicker and not always do it the way it should be done. And so he acts, in a sense, as an overseer in how he does things there. It's more than just decision-making, being a church officer is not just voting in a meeting, but they are intended to guard the health and guide the growth of the church. That's what an overseer does. And so men who are shaped by the gospel focus on glorifying God by serving his people for their good, the good of the people, not themselves. And so it calls for a lot of sacrifice. And so when Paul talks about this, he says, he who sets his heart, which could probably better tra- be better translated as the one who strives or reaches out. Okay, this is not just sort of a, ah, I'd like to be an elder someday, or I'd like to be a deacon. But this is someone who sets his heart, who's striving for something. This implies active preparation. Think of your vocation for a moment. For those of you who have a degree or uh, some sort of advanced knowledge, did you just kind of fall into that job one day? You can't just walk up and say, Hi, Tucson Electric, I want to be an accountant. Do you have a degree? Do you have experience? 
No, but I want to be an accountant. They'll send you on your way. (laughs) You may want to be an accountant somewhere, but not here, (laughs) not today. Go to school. You have to strive, and so there's a preparation. And so Paul is pointing to the reality that someone doesn't just happen to become an elder, an overseer one day. It is something that they prepare for. There are are years of preparation that take place to become someone who is properly qualified to be an overseer in God's church. He also uses this, he who desires, to kind of reinforce this. Usually this word is used in a negative context, talking about our idolatry, but here it is used in a positive context. It is the, the idea is more of a, a, a top desire, a, a most important desire, a priority. And so this person has set a priority on being an overseer. It is something that is important to him. It is something that matters. And so there's this sense in uh, this language that Paul uses that there is what we call the internal call that this person experiences. That God has placed this upon their heart. God has moved them. It's not something that they are doing reluctantly with their arms sort of, sure, I'll be an officer of the church. It's, yes, I want to serve God and his people. This is a man who loves God and loves God's church, and so he senses this inward call to care for them, to care for God's people. And so it is a good thing for a man to put himself on the path to serving the church. Paul says it's good. This is good. Second part of this is that God produces godly guys to govern through the gospel. Paul continues, he doesn't just kind of say, hey, it's a good thing that this happens, but he then lays out what Timothy should be looking for, and that is what you should be looking for when you think of officers for this congregation. He lays out three basic qualifications. It's essentially the same for elders and deacons. The specifics are a little different, but there must be character, competency, and soundness of doctrine. Those, those are the three big picture things. He lists out character, first of all. And if you look at, at both these lists, that we didn't read about the deacons, but if you look at it, it's almost word for word what you find for overseers or elders. Character. It matters. Not only that, but he talks about competency, which is, for the elders, it says, able to teach. There must be a competency for instructing God's people in the gospel. It's also revealed in that aspect of being able to manage his family well. There's a displayed competency that goes along with that. In terms of the deacons, we find it in the the idea of they must be tested. That doesn't mean you take a written exam or an oral exam and you fill out little, oh yes, uh, multi-choice, this is C, you know. Oh, uh, doctrine of justification means this. No, it's you have been given tasks. You are involved in the life of the church, and the leadership is watching to see how you do, even when you fail. How does that person respond? Do they have character in that? Are they competent in that? Do they learn from their failures and progress and grow? And then there is soundness of doctrine. It's implied in the idea there of able to teach. Able to teach what? Sound doctrine. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. But we see this as well with the deacons. Okay, Deacons are not just 
guys who do work, but it says they must hold to the deep things of the faith. They are godly men who understand biblical doctrine. So, those are the three things. Precisely because those are the three ways that leaders tend to ruin churches. Through sin, through incompetence, and through false teaching. The church I pastored in Florida, when I got there, was 40 people. When it started, it was over 120. Why? Sin. The man didn't have the character he needed. And it split that church numerous times. Think about the flight squadron that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Why? This man's incompetence is what led him to bring his men to death. They didn't die with a glorious intent. It was his own incompetence that led them there. There's nothing that can destroy a church quicker than false teaching. Unsound doctrine. Those are the big three risks for a church, and so, therefore, those are the three things that a, a, a godly leader must have. Let's pause for a moment. You, you look at this list of character in particular, but remember what the first reliable saying was. Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul recognizes in the present tense that he considered himself to be the biggest sinner he knew, and yet now he's talking about how character is essential for officers. How do you get from chapter 1 to chapter 3? That is very important. The first part is remembering what it said in chapter 1. Christ came to save those sinners. And so while Paul recognizes the sinfulness of his heart in the present tense, he also recognizes that Jesus has come to save him and is is saving him from the power and the practice of sin. That God is at work in his life through the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform him from big sinner to godly guy. And that there's a process that, that he goes through for this. So that's that's part of the equation. The second part, we find in chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Again, this, this false stuff that's filling the church. Rather, train yourself to be godly. That verb is gymnasio. Does it sound a little familiar? Yes, I see Ken sometimes when I go to the gym. (laughs) I'm there to train my body, to bring it into submission, to tell it to not be quite as fat and lazy (laughs) as it has been. So there's an active participation in this process, training oneself to be godly. We see this as well in chapter 6, verse 11, where we see the, the negative side of this. He's talking about some great sins that people are committing. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all those sins and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many 
witnesses. So again, there is this pursuit of that which is good, but there is also this running away from that which is wrong, that which is evil. It is something that we, we have to work out. It is not something that happens automatically. Okay? A godly lifestyle is not automatic or accidental. Again, think about, why is Marty an accountant? He chose to be an accountant. He, he pursued the necessary study to become an accountant. If you want to be a violinist like Joseph, you have to put in hours upon hours of practice to play the violin that beautifully. It doesn't, he didn't just, what's this? And all of a sudden he's playing a very beautiful piece of Beethoven on a violin. Doesn't happen. Okay? And it's the same way with godliness. It doesn't just happen. We see in uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says to the people in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you to will and work. Usually it's translated act, but it's the same thing, the same word that God's working, so we work. Not in justification. Justification is what we call monergistic, only God works. Sanctification is synergistic, both we and God work, but the reason we can work is only because God works first. And so, to become this person which is qualified for office, which... That's what we're all supposed to be, male or female, mature in Christ. That's the picture that is given, mature in Christ. So that's something we all should be aspiring for, whether or not we're ever going to be an officer in the church. Okay? We work as God works in us. And I, I was listening to an older version, different version of this sermon, and I, and I was, that's when Jaden was learning how to ride a tricycle. That's how long ago it was, in my mind. And... It's sort of like this. We, she had no idea how to pedal a tricycle. She hadn't pedaled a thing in her life. And so you know, we put her on there and we're showing her how to move her feet onto the pedals to make it go forward. We're working so that she works and learns. And so it was pretty easy, actually, when she learned to ride her bicycle without training wheels. I thought it would take days, weeks, months. I don't know. And it was like, boom, it happened. So there's some things that take a long time, and there's some things that happen quickly, but God works so that we learn, so that we grow, so that we become what he intends for us to be. So how does this happen sort of more in the nuts and bolts of it, so to speak? I've got a couple things. One, we must keep our eyes focused upon the cross. It is there that we see Sin's evil. But it is also there that we see the greatness of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. We see both of those things. That's why the cross is so important to our growth and in, in, in sanctification. Because we need to know how awful our sin is, but also how great the Savior is. We need to know both of these things. And so we keep our eyes focused upon Him. Okay? To, I'm going to work this through. And I'm going to talk about my own sin because that's the one I know best. Okay? 
I come from a long line of angry people. If and Amy's agreeing, <laughs> have I made progress, honey? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every time we, we, we spend time with my family, she goes, God has brought Steve so far. It's amazing. <laughs> I come from a, a long line of angry people. Okay? And it's at the cross that I see both how ugly and wicked and sinful my anger is because it seems normal to me. I grew up like this. I need to see how bad it is. And I look at the cross and I say, my anger put Christ on the cross. That's how evil it is. But I also see the richness of His mercy. And I can rejoice. Even as I repent. Okay? So, first, keep your eyes focused on the cross. On the cross. Secondly, remember who you are. Remember that you are someone that God has justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that you are united with Christ. Remember that you are God's adopted child. All of the things that Scripture says about you, we must live these things out. It's like looking in the mirror. We need to look in the... Scripture in in James 1 is talked about as a mirror. And it can be a mirror to see our sin but it also can be a mirror to see who, we, who God calls us, who we are. And so we need to stop and take note of those places where he, he says, this is who you are in Christ, and we need to remember, that is who I am, and that is how I should live. Not the old way, the new way. So keeping our eyes focused on the cross, remembering who we are in Christ, and then meditating on the word where you struggle. And so... James 1 is one of those places, and I'm not going to quote it from memory, just so I don't goof it up. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And here's what I usually focus on myself. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. When you're a parent, Sometimes you get really ticked at your kids, (laughs) right? They get in the way of your agenda. See, kiddos, you get sometimes really mad at your parents, right? Because they ruin your agenda. So you have the same problem, (laughs) okay? And I remember there being times when, this is back in our house in Florida, where I'm trying to enjoy a quiet, peaceful time with my honey, who I haven't seen all day, and Jaden is causing a commotion about some sort, of, and I'm just so angry. And as I'm as I'm walking the short distance to her door from our living room, because it was far smaller than our house now, that coming to mind. That my anger, not only being unrighteous, will not enable me to live the righteous life I desire for myself or that I desire for my daughter. And so there have been times where it's like, I'm ready to hurt somebody, and then three steps later, I'm gently walking through the door. That is only the grace of God. But He gives it through His Word when we trust it. We must meditate upon His Word at times, where, where we struggle 
because I need to remember all the time that, that, that my anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires for me or my family. And it has to stop me short. Pull me up. Not only that, but lastly, for this section, follow the Spirit's lead into obedience. Titus 2, which is written to a similar situation, the grace of God has appeared so that it may teach us to say no to ungodly desires, that we might live an upright and righteous life in this present age. And so there's an aspect in which we have, when, when these evil desires rise up within us, we have to say no. Just like he says to, Paul, uh, sorry, to Timothy, flee those things. Sometimes we flee by getting out of the room. Uh, going away. So, what we find as we, as we try to connect chapter 1 and chapter 3 is that qualified officers are men in whom the gospel has made significant progress. They are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the gospel has made progress. Significant progress. So, gospel-shaped leaders grow in the gospel knowledge and application toward maturity. Third part of this. Yeah, three. God governs His people by the gospel through these gospel guys. In other words, it's all about the gospel. Let's look at 1 Timothy 1, verses 10 and 11. He's talking about the use of the law. I'll start in verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law was made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is he entrusted to me. So, Paul looks at sinful actions and attitudes. He traces them back to unsound doctrine. And that word there is really unhealthy. So, unhealthy living is the, produ- is the product of unhealthy doctrine, which really reme- means that there is an absent or corrupted gospel. There is a false or absent gospel at work to produce the sinful behavior. Okay? And so therefore, every church problem, every personal problem is in some way the result of ignoring or forsaking the gospel. What it should look like is there is the gospel. All sound doctrine is in accordance or conforms to the gospel and therefore produces sound, healthy, godly, upright living. Do you see that, pro- that, that progress? Okay, You need to know sound doctrine. All sound doctrine accords with the gospel, and all sound doctrine, if believed, will produce sound living. Okay, And so as a result, we find that all biblical ministry is fundamentally gospel ministry. 
Dick Kaufman is a former colleague of Tim Keller's. He now uh, is pastor of the Harbor Churches in San Diego. And uh, I rediscovered one of his quotes yesterday. Uh, He said this, When you train leaders, you will get what leaders give. Sounds good, right? But if you train men to traffic in the gospel, you will get what the gospel offers. See the importance here. If we want a congregation to experience what the gospel offers, we must have men who are trained in trafficking in the gospel. Who see everything in light of and connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are the men we're looking for. Who's already got this? Who's already working in that direction? Who's already making progress in in, in seeing life this way? That's who we want. And Tim Keller kind of breaks it down in in three things. He talks about it this way. Gospel theologizing, sorry. Gospel theologizing, gospel realizing, and gospel incarnating. And this is the last stuff I got today, so, okay. Gospel theologizing, meaning that based on what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 1.10, all theology is meant to help us to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All sound theology is meant to, is, is somehow connected to the gospel. Take, for instance, the Trinity. The Trinity is not intended merely to be an intellectual exercise in understanding who God is in the abstract. But what we see in John's letter, he says, God is love. Augustine rightly noticed that that is actually a a text that supports the idea of the Trinity. Precisely because... If there is a, the one who loves, there must be someone or something to love. And so it points to the, the reality of the community, the eternal fellowship between Father, Son, and Spirit. And here's how this connects to the gospel. Because they love, they want to bring others into. They want to share that community and fellowship with others. And so they made man and saved man from his sin to bring it into that blessed community that we might know it. Okay? So all theology can, must or should connect to the gospel to be rightly understood and applied. Gospel realizing has this idea that we grow in our personal understanding and application of the gospel. That, that we are plumbing the depths of it. That it's like a, I don't want to say a cave, but a cave. We're experiencing, we're exploring every nook and cranny and seeing all the connections that go on with the gospel in our lives. And we are also applying it. So it's not just a head knowledge, but it is a practical working knowledge of it. Let's say, I'm going to pick on Dick now. Okay. Dick doesn't just have a theoretical, practical knowledge of tools 
Dick has a working knowledge of tools because he uses them. That's the picture. Not a guy who's trapped in an office and who thinks great thoughts about the gospel, but a guy, we're looking for the guys who also work with the gospel, apply it to their own problems. Okay? That's gospel realizing. So what happens is that biblical overseers believe, live, teach, and apply the gospel to all of life. And so you see that he moves into the situations that Timothy is experiencing here, the controversies, and say, oh yeah, the endless genealogies. And he says, you know what? The only genealogy that matters, ultimately, is the genealogy of Jesus. You don't have to try and prove your worth through looking at who you're related to. What matters is if you're connected to Jesus by faith. And if you are, then you've got good stuff. Don't focus on endless genealogies. Don't focus on old wives' tales, but instead the truth of the gospel. And so what, what they do is they bring all, the gospel to bear in all of those problems, that are the false doctrine, the, the sin that is at work, the, the controversies that are sort of there. They, they apply it in this practical knowledge. That last aspect is this gospel incarnating, and that, that means to live as an example and manifestation of the truth of the gospel. To live as one who is being transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. When I was talking a bit about this in Flagstaff, Steve said, I may have to tender my resignation at the end of the sermon. And I said, well, I won't accept it. (laughs) I think I said that anyway. I meant to if I didn't. This is not about guys who have arrived, but this is about guys who are well on the way. You don't have to be perfect to be a church officer. And you guys don't have to wait until someone is perfect. But you want to make sure they're well on the way. That there is a track record. That there is a consistency. That's what you're looking for. So, gospel-shaped leadership is essential to the long-term health and growth of any church. This means that we're looking for people who see all of life through the lens of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. People who apply that same gospel to their own lives and to the problems that the church has. Not business practices, gospel practices. Here's the ironic thing. Well, I don't know, maybe it's not ironic. But every one of us who's marked by grace should be growing in that grace evidenced by maturity in Christ. You may not have the gifting or the call to be an officer, but you have the call to be mature in Christ. Character. So what does your life reveal? Are you making progress down the road by the grace of God? Is God at work in you? Or are you kind of 
like some of the cars we saw on the way back from Flagstaff, just kind of stuck. Hood up, tire off, something. Are you making progress? Or are you not going anywhere? Let's pray. Father, your word issues us a very high call indeed. I am reminded of Paul's words to the Ephesians, where he said that we are to imitate you as beloved children. I'm also reminded of his words when he said, imitate me, because he was moving down the path and had made significant progress by your grace. You've laid out the design here in your word, but you've also laid out the means to accomplishing that, to following that. And I ask that you would raise up men in this congregation who traffic in the gospel to lead this congregation into the future, to increasingly healthy doctrine and healthy living and and expanding personal and public ministry. Continue to lay the foundation for a God-honoring, God-glorifying, gospel-shaped ministry here at Desert Springs. One that helps others to know and to grow in the gospel grace. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, through whom all who believe have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen.